I'm looking at my watch and uh, I've got record time. I'm up record early. Lots of time. I'm going to use it. Someone started crying over here and I heard tears. Of, was that heckling? I'm not sure. Let's pray. Let's pray for the people right over here. Um, God, when we sing, when we sing the doxology, when we sing the great hymns, when we sing uh, songs that talk about your greatness and your goodness and your salvation history, our hearts are warmed, our spirits are lifted, and appropriately so. There is something infinitely and eternally right and good about being in postures of worship and adoration and honoring to you and of you. We thank you for the opportunities to gather uh, in this place uh, together and online and in our homes to sing and praise and pray and to seek you out. We ask and pray together now that as we open your word that you would give us that same posture outwardly and inwardly of worship and of seeking you and of hunger and of knowing what is good and what is right and what is true. Give us ears that are good to hear, hearts that are good soil to receive your word. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be immediately forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna start with some questions this morning. What do people think about Jesus? What do people say about Jesus? Who do people say Jesus was? Who do people say that Jesus is? I'm going to ask those again uh, to refresh you and take up some of this extra time. But they are not empty questions and rhetorical answers. I would like you, I invite you, please do, not only think and listen, but speak out and answer these questions after I repeat them. What do people think about Jesus? What do people say about Jesus? Who do people say that Jesus was? Who do a variety of people, people out there, people in here, people around the world, say that Jesus is? Who do people say that Jesus was? Who do people say that Jesus is? Go ahead, you get to talk today. Not mic'd, but you get to talk here in the house. You can talk at home too. Teacher? Good teacher. Prophet. Bread of life. Son of God. Savior, someone else said. Healer. Messiah. Now I'm gonna pause. And I'm going to challenge you and ask a little bit different way. Not who do Christians say that Jesus is, but who does the world say that Jesus is? People think Jesus is soft, right? Soft, even effeminate sometimes. A good person, and only a good person. Made up, fiction. Pretend, lore, myth, crazy. crazy. 
What else? Think about the world. Radical. And that can mean all kinds of things, can't it? What else? Who do people say that Jesus is? Who have people said that Jesus is? The one way to heaven. One of many ways to heaven. One of just many ways to heaven. A prophet. In contrast to a loss. Well, some people feel that Jesus will be beneficial to them, profitable and prophetic. Elijah, good. A good moral example. Yes, he was a fine gentleman, wasn't he? Most of the time, a lot of, some of the time. Any others? He's a mascot. Jesus is mascot. Absolutely, in some ways, for some people. A fraud. Jesus was a charlatan, a quack. A crutch. Very good. A baby. I promise not to say too much more about that or the scene from Talladega Nights a couple of weeks ago. I'm swearing off of that through Christmas. Sort of, maybe. All right, you guys are really good. Really, uh, that was good. I mean, that was good thinking about who Christians have said Jesus is and who the rest of the world have said that Jesus is. Uh, It's a good question. It's an important question. It's a question that, as we'll see in Mark's gospel in a moment, Jesus himself asked And Jesus asked this question at what is, interestingly, the geographic and theological turning point in Mark's gospel. It's sort of exactly halfway through Mark's gospel, the end or the latter part of chapter eight of 16 chapters, but it is also the geographic and theological turning point, the sort of fulcrum on which everything else turns in Mark's gospel. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been moving around Galilee, as you know, mostly Galilee, and most recently, some Gentile and pagan areas just outside of Galilee, where Jesus has been interacting with non-Jewish people, with outsiders, foreigners, unclean people. And all along in Jesus' public ministry to this point, both among Jewish people in Galilee and non-Jewish people on the edges of Galilee, Jesus has cast out demons, caused the lame to walk, healed the sick, given sight to the blind, walked on water, multiplied loaves of bread and fish, shepherded the lost, fed the hungry, and affirmed that all people matter to God. This is a lot of what Jesus has been doing in Mark's gospel up until this point. The focus has been over and over and over, you may remember, on Jesus' authority, and Jesus' power, his power and his authority. And now after all that, we're at a turning point in Mark's gospel. This is critical juncture. Therefore, it's all the more important that we pay attention, that we listen closely, that we be attentive, eyes, ears, mind, spirit, soul to God's word. So listen closely, starting at chapter eight of Mark's gospel, verse 27, this is God's word. 
Jesus and his disciples went on from a town called Bethsaida in the previous verses to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah, Christ, uh, anointed one. Uh, Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, or Yeshua, uh, which means the anointed one, an anointed one. You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the, thing, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And context is always important in anything you read, and especially in the scriptures, and especially in this case. And in this case, the setting of the context is particularly interesting. Jesus is with his disciples or his students or his apprentices in tow. They had gone from Bethsaida on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, straight north to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. The history of Caesarea Philippi being very interesting. It got its name most recently. There were a variety of Caesareas, obviously local rulers, kings, or governors, tetrarchs, who uh, owe their position to Caesar, to the emperor, naming towns, cities, villages after him in deference to the king, to the emperor, to get on his good side. Who wouldn't do that? This region gets named Caesarea Philippi by one of Herod the Great's four sons, Philip, who becomes tetrarch after Herod the Great dies of this area. And so he names the prominent city in that area Caesarea Philippi, but there's more in the history of Caesarea Philippi than that. There is a natural rock formation that those of you who have been to Israel have seen still today in that area, and that area, that town, the ancient city of Dan, the also ancient pagan area to the god Pan, P-A-N, was this vortex of religious pluralism over the centuries. Lots of beliefs, lots of traditions, lots of customs, lots of religions had come together there in that geographic space. Uh, we're gonna show a slide now of what that space looks like today. And from that place, springs come up out of the depths of the earth, out of this cave that people thought this is where the gods came from. And all of these different beliefs came to this sacred place and they carved temples in the stone wall there in the cliff, next slide, that you can still see today. And this is sort of the universal world coming together, all the beliefs, all the religions, all of these traditions, and right there at the foot of this cliff, at the foot of this carved out wall where temples and idols have been carved, Jesus says to his disciples, 
who do people say that I am? Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi on the way Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? What are people saying? And certainly Jesus knew or could imagine what people, crowds, whoever were saying about him. The purpose of his question wasn't really to find out what people were saying, but to ask his disciples to consider what people were saying and to prompt them to consider and decide for themselves who they understood Jesus to be. Well, Jesus' students, who were all Jewish, right? All of his disciples, most of his followers at this time, or Jewish, replied. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. And these were all Jewish people. They answered within their context. They were Jewish. They thought Jewish. Their minds functioned in their known world. Fine. John the Baptist. Elijah. Another one of the prophets. Jesus and John the Baptist were contemporaries for a while until Herod cut off John the Baptist's head and then they were no longer contemporaries. Someone could have known by seeing these two men together when they had been seen together, oh, they can't be the same person, but John's been gone for a while, and so people think maybe John's come back from the dead. He was such a powerful person, such a powerful prophet. He and Jesus spoke and preached and prophesied in very similar ways. Some say John the Baptist, back from the dead. Some say Elijah, Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of Israel, who never died, who was taken up to heaven in this sort of vision that everyone saw. He never died. And so he's back, real life form, the great prophet. He's here, he's with us. Or one of the other great prophets who weren't always popular, who were often unpopular, like Jesus had become at times, well-known, but saying things that were hard and that hurt. Maybe he's one of the prophets. Well, what about you, Jesus asks. Now making the question more personal, who do you say that I am? What other people think and say is interesting. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And this question is still the question that Jesus asks every one of us today. And maybe every day. Who do you say that I am? Peter's answer was Messiah. The Greek, uh, the translators of the Greek English, uh, Greek to English, don't put an exclamation point there, interestingly. I kind of read it as Messiah, but Peter just says Messiah. Messiah. You are the Messiah. And we have to realize how loaded that response was for Peter. Anointed one. Christ. You remember uh, the first verse of Mark's gospel, which serves as both the title of Mark's gospel as well as the first verse, and his thesis statement. And it went like this, it goes like this. Some of you have it memorized. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. That's verse one of chapter one. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, Messiah, Son of God. Jesus Christ, same thing, Greek, Hebrew. 
the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And there it is. Mark told us right at the beginning. And now for eight chapters, people have been wondering who Jesus is. Where did Jesus come from? How could he do such things? What is Jesus about? Who is Jesus? And Peter, the first and foremost of Jesus' apprentices, finally blurts it out at the critical halfway point of Mark's gospel. You are the Messiah. And in one sense, all of the questions and mystique about Jesus seem to finally be answered and resolved and clarified. And Caesarea Philippi, at the crossroads of all of these great religions, faiths, traditions, beliefs, ways, Peter declares, you're the Messiah. And there's something resolving and final for us about Peter's statement. Yes, that's why Jesus, that's who Jesus is. He's not John the Baptist, he's not Elijah, he's not just another prophet back from the dead. And he's over against and above and better than and truer than and stronger than all of the false deities of the, and the pagans of Pan and Caesarea Philippi and their temples. Jesus is the Messiah. But a couple of things must be said about this. First, we've read a lot of things back into the Messiah. There wasn't necessarily for the Jewish people in the Old Testament the Messiah, but could have been just as much a Messiah. Anointed one could refer to a number of people, a lot of different kinds of people. Different people who were anointed, blessed, looked upon with favor by God. We've read back into it this one great thing because we're reading through the story of Jesus from the New Testament. It wasn't quite that way in Peter's time. Moreover, there was this idea in first century Jesus' time, Peter's time, that Messiah, a Messiah, the Messiah, some Messiah, would have political overtones, that he would be about politics, that he would be about power, that he would be about government, that he would be a king, that he would be a king in the lineage of David that he would rule like David, that Israel would be great again, that the oppression from the Greeks and the Romans now and others over their history would be done after hundreds of years and they would live freely. They would experience the fullness of salvation. The promised land would be fully theirs. And can't you still feel that yearning 2,000 years later? Can't we just have our promised land and live freely and at peace, shalom? There are all these undertones and overtones in the idea of Messiah that Peter puts forward. Second, notice this. Jesus doesn't say to Peter, you nailed it. You got it. You've answered wisely. You're so smart. You're my best student. I'm so proud of you, Peter. I am the Messiah. And now let's get on with it, with the work and ministry of the Messiah. And on you, Peter, I will build my church. You're so great. You just, you just nailed it. Which is kind of how I read into the story when I remember the story when I've thought about it before. I don't know if that's the case for any of the rest of you. You kind of put an exclamation on, you're the Messiah, and Jesus coming back immediately going, bam, you got it. You got it, Peter. But Jesus doesn't say any of that. Wait for verse, uh, what does Jesus say in verse 30? It goes like this. Immediately thereafter, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. I thought Peter had answered correctly and well. I thought the question of who Jesus was had been resolved, and yet Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Huh? 
It's another instance of what uh, the scholars call the messianic secret. Instead of encouraging his disciples and others, including those who have been healed, to tell everyone about him, instead Jesus says over and over and over up to this point in Mark's gospel, don't tell anyone, keep a lid on it. Which is strange and counterintuitive and which you don't really understand. It is inexplicable in some ways up to this point in Mark's gospel. One good guess at why Jesus does this, in other words, why Jesus tells people not to tell others about him or what he's doing, is that Jesus believed that his time, his time had not yet come. The time for his public ministry, the time for his coming out, the time for crucifixion and resurrection. It's not yet there. That's one guess at why Jesus says things like this. Another good guess or explanation is that Jesus didn't want to be known, followed, worshipped for the wrong things, the wrong reasons. He was concerned that who he was and what he was all about, if allowed to be shaped by popular opinion or selfish desires, wants, needs, would actually lead people down a dangerous path. And so Jesus would warn people not to tell others about him, not yet at least. There would be a time for that when and after Jesus' disciples and others had come to understand who Jesus truly was and what he was all about, what he was really about, what he was actually about. And that seems to be the case here in chapter eight at the turning point, again, of Mark's gospel. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And then the Bible I most often read out of puts an editorial break right there in another bold subtitle or heading right after verse 30. As if that is the end of a thought or an event or an action or an interaction, but it's not the end at all, it continues. Mark continues straight into verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus spoke plainly about this. Jesus had warned Peter and Jesus' other students not to tell anyone about him. Now he's speaking plainly to them. Don't tell anyone, and now he's speaking plainly. Don't talk openly to others about me right now, but I'm gonna speak openly, clearly, plainly to you, as crystal clear as I can. And Jesus refers to himself here not as Messiah, notice, but as Son of Man, which was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, every time Jesus refers to himself in the Gospel of Mark, he uses the phrase, the term, son of man. No one else does, but Jesus does. Not Messiah here. Not Messiah up to this point. Son of man. It was Jesus' favorite way, his choice way, of speaking about himself. The son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and three days rise again. And this is the first of three times in Mark's gospel that Jesus is going to speak of his upcoming and imminent suffering, rejection, crucifixion, and resurrection. This is the first of three times that Jesus will speak of this, but it doesn't really matter how many times he told or will tell Peter and the other disciples, they couldn't hear him. They didn't. They wouldn't. They had in their mind certain ideas about Messiah and who Messiah would be and how Messiah would be and they were locked into those ideas. Are you with me? Do people ever tell you things? Does the news ever say something to you but you're already locked in to how something is? 
what you believe, what you want to believe, how you want reality to be. And so you really don't or can't hear what's being said or written or taught. Has anyone ever had that experience besides me? And Jesus, in not so subtle ways, says to his students and apprentices, whom he is actively now teaching, we we talked about last week. Jesus has gone from sort of passive teaching, now in this transition to more active teaching. They've been following and watching and learning passively. Now Jesus is more emphatic and more intentional in his discipling these men who are following him. Jesus says, in not so subtle ways, to his students and apprentices, whom he's actively now teaching, I am not the Messiah you envision. I am Messiah Christ, but I am not the Messiah you envision, the Messiah you necessarily want, the Messiah who caters to your vision, the Messiah who serves your purposes. I am different. I will suffer, I will be rejected, I will die, and I will be raised. And this, is, this important thing is implied. If you apprentice with me, the same lot will be yours. If you apprentice with me, the same lot will be yours. And in the words of Jack Nicholson, Peter couldn't handle the truth. And so Peter pulled Jesus aside and Peter rebuked Jesus, which in itself makes clear that Peter just didn't get it. If he thought that he had any right or that it was appropriate or okay in any way for him to rebuke the Messiah. He's just called Jesus Messiah And then he proceeds to rebuke Messiah. Goodness. And then Jesus more appropriately rebukes Peter, using the same word again for rebuke that Mark used earlier to describe how Jesus spoke to evil spirits, unclean spirits, demonic spirits. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And that really sums it up there. Peter and the others had a vision for Messiah that fit their human plans, their wishes, their desires, their cravings for order, power, prominence, position, etc., whatever. And all of that was wrapped up in what Peter understood and meant by Messiah. But Jesus, Messiahship and Jesus' way and Jesus' reign and Jesus' kingdom were going to be, and they already were and they continue to be this day, fundamentally different than the ways of the world and the ways of government or the ways of programs and powers and structures. Jesus called, Jesus calls us, you, me, the church, to an understanding of himself and Messiah and Son of God and Son of Man that is consistent with the kingdom Jesus described, that he modeled, that he enacted, that he embodied in unwavering truth, irrepressible mercy, unexpected kindness, radical generosity, appropriate justice, relentless love, tender compassion, humble servitude, servanthood, reconciliation, healing, wholeness, shalom. It's not what Peter was envisioning. Peter expected and even expected a king on a throne. Jesus would be a king on a cross. As becomes crystal clear in the next passage of Mark's gospel that we'll get to in two weeks. And still Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? The question comes to us. 
And do we say that, and who do we say that Jesus is? How do we understand Messiah? Who is that, that we want Messiah to be? And do we have in mind the concerns of God or our own concerns? This, I think, is the question. It is just as common today as it was around Caesarea Philippi and among Jesus' first disciples to want Jesus to be who we want Jesus to be. Can anyone else testify to that besides me? I see this work within me, this inclination to want Jesus to be who I want Jesus to be and to filter the scriptures accordingly. To think of Jesus in a way that works for us to make him out to be someone that he is not, whether that be the precious Jesus, the precious moments Jesus, the cool Jesus, the American Jesus, the democratic Jesus, the Republican Jesus, the black Jesus, the white Jesus, the social justice Jesus, the evangelical altar call, repeat after me the sinner's prayer Jesus. The American Jesus, the foreign Jesus. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes for a moment and consider who and how you want Jesus to be and which, which images and ideas about Messiah you gravitate toward for whatever reason. Again, the baby Jesus, the precious Jesus, black Jesus, white Jesus, Republican Jesus, Democratic Jesus, left Jesus, right Jesus, white Jesus, black Jesus, wealthy Jesus, poor Jesus, One of the challenges of Christian thinking and discipleship is allowing Jesus to be in one's life who Jesus actually is, who Jesus says he is. Of course, what you or I, you and I, think or say doesn't affect truth, doesn't really affect who Jesus actually is. We can't change truth. Truth just stands on its own. It is what it is, regardless of what you think, what I think, what you say, what I say. But one's understanding of or one's thinking about Jesus can, does, and will affect one's relationship with Jesus without a doubt, and so also one's life in every way. Make no mistake. I can choose and live with my own inaccurate or incomplete understanding of Jesus and go on my own happy, deluded way, in which case I am doomed. Or I can allow Jesus to define who he is and what it means for him, to him, to be Messiah and so live according to reality. It's my choice. I have a choice in this. You have a choice in this. Peter was looking for power and prestige and politics and position. And Jesus, in no uncertain terms or ways, rebuked him. Peter said the right words, I notice. Again, he got the right answer. He had the right key word. He answered correctly. He got an A. You are the Messiah. There's nothing wrong with that answer. What was lacking in it, Jesus knew, was his understanding of Messiah. How he understood Messiah, what Messiah truly meant, what Jesus' way of being Messiah and Son of God and Son of Man would mean in Peter's life. Anne Lamott said, wrote, uh, you can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that, the, that God hates all the same people you do. 
Or you could say more positively, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God loves exactly the same people that you love. We are inclined to this thing that Peter was doing. And I think this passage more than anything calls us to that sort of self-awareness of the nature of our faith and the nature of our humanity, of being how we're inclined to be. It does matter what we believe about Jesus and his messiahship and his identity as son of man and son of God. What we believe and how close we are to the truth and what Jesus says about himself and the scriptures, what the scriptures teach and record about the way of Jesus matters infinitely in our spirits, in our minds, in our relationships, and the way that we live out our lives. This is the call of this passage of scripture, to step back, to think about how we understand Jesus whether or not we've got it right, our own predilection or propensity to put on Jesus or into Jesus or to make of Jesus what we want him to be, who we want him to be. Peter could not have been excited about suffer, be rejected, be crucified. That was not what Peter wanted, expected, desired. That was not part of his vision of Messiah. But Jesus lays hold of those things and says, apart from those things, I am not Messiah. And yet he was. And so those things and others are integrally a part of being in Christ, Messiah. Being with Jesus and as we'll see in the next passage, following him. God save us from a flawed understanding of Messiah. God save us from thinking that by naming Jesus, we can define him and secure for ourselves the kind of relationship that we want with him. Jesus' teaching about his passion signals a new beginning in the narrative. Until now, his ascent has been about authority and power. And it now becomes about identity and function. May we be attentive to Jesus in this, along the rest of the road, and in all things. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge that every one of us has a bit of Peter in us in some way. In our inability to hear or our not wanting to understand or our subtle wanting things to be the way we want them to be. Often, maybe usually, for our own comfort, our own well-being, our own security, our own wants, likes, dispositions and you know all of this we're not saying anything that you don't already know we're more truly saying this for ourselves and acknowledging and coming clean before you and asking both for your mercy and for your forgiveness and also for your help 
Open our minds and hearts to you as you are, to Jesus as he was, to Jesus as he is, to your scripture, to your spirit, to reality as reality is. In that we know that you have for us grace and hope and peace and joy and life. Draw us in your mercy back into this orbit, in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. And it's no coincidence that we get to this table today. I said earlier that we've, we're entering in chapter eight in this passage a transition, turning a corner in Mark's gospel. And this is the first of three times in the passage that we just read that Jesus clarifies, identifies, reiterates, states clearly, this is the sort of Messiah that he would be. Not just to heal our broken limbs, not just to straighten out our social, social situations, but to reunite us with God through the reconciling and forgiving power of his death on a cross. And that is what we remember and what we celebrate here today. We have the nerve and we have the joy to celebrate his suffering and his rejection and his death that we might also be able to celebrate his, re his resurrection. That is the bigger truth of this table, this meal, this feast, this sacrament of the church. We say in the Presbyterian Church that this sacrament doesn't belong to us, doesn't belong to me or to the elders of the church or to any institution, but it belongs to the Lord God and Jesus Christ. It's his, he extends the invitation. The only qualification for coming is knowing that we don't qualify, that none of us are good enough, that we all have needs, that we all fall short, and that we're desperately dependent on his grace. So it doesn't matter whether you're at home or here in the sanctuary. If you're a member of this church or a member of any church, if you're really good or you're not really good, if you're righteous, we know you're not. Or if you've loved as God has called you to love, you haven't, I haven't. But God has loved us. And so his invitation goes like that. To come and eat and see and be filled and to be nourished. We are invited. Let's pray. God, we ask that through this bread and this juice that you would do the things that only you can do, that you would reinforce, that you would seal upon us, that you would open our eyes, that you would nourish our spirits, that you would refresh our souls, that you would unite us one with another in all of our imperfections, and that you would unite us with you as one body that you would be glorified, that we would be satisfied, that your kingdom might come outwardly and inwardly on earth as it is in heaven, in the church building and outside, to the ends of the earth. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this, eat this, in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink all of it abundantly. 
the Apostle Paul tells the church, tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup in this manner together, we proclaim the Lord's sanctifying and saving death until he comes again in glory, which he will. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will the servers uh, please come forward? And in just a moment, you all will be invited to come forward, if you are able, uh, down the center aisle, a pew at a time, remaining socially distanced if possible. And at the center station on each side, you will be uh, handed a piece of bread, take a napkin in the little holder there on the first pew. Uh, a piece of bread will be torn off by people whose hands have been sanitized and who will be wearing masks, I will. Put on your piece of, on your napkin and then go to the next station and you will be given a small cup of already poured bread and in this way receive uh, communion or the body and blood of Jesus. If you prefer the prepackaged elements, uh, they are available in the corners and the corner stations. Uh, those uh, have gluten-free bread inside of them for those who need them. All things are ready.